Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Portal Asset Management's monthly webinar. Portal seeks to bring you conversations with some of the leading digital asset creators, commentators, and regulators. It is a place to be inquisitive, questioning, and engaged. Portal's webinars are broadcast live and are then made available on all major podcast platforms. My name is Derek Graham, and I am the CEO of Portal Asset Management. And hosting the webinar is Mr. Mark Witten, CIO of Portal Asset Management. Please be aware that neither Portal, its guests, or listeners are providing financial advice. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to Portal Asset Management's monthly webinar. My name is Derek Graham. I'm CEO of Portal Asset Management, and Portal Asset Management, of course, is the founder and advisor to three funds in the digital asset space. The first fund is our flagship fund, which is the Portal Digital Fund, which is a fund of institutional grade hedge funds that invests across the crypto asset space. The fund has a volatility of around 25% and has outperformed the market over the past three years. The second fund is the Radiance Multi-Strategy Fund, which directly invests in what the research team considered to be the best of tokens within each sector, layer one, layer two, web 3.0, DeFi, metaverse, etc. Its volatility is some 30 to 50%. And the final fund is the Horizon Index Fund, which is a simple weighted index fund covering the top 25 tokens, less stable coins, reweighted each month. The outcome are three funds offering broad exposure to crypto assets at different levels of volatility to each of the two to meet each sort of chosen portfolio risk appetite. Um, all have 30-day redemption with following monthly liquidity. But a big part of what we do here at Portal Asset Management is be part of the community and share education. Uh, we do this via our weekly um, podcast, Beyond Bitcoin, and you'll see Nitin Gao with us today, our CTO. He and I do Beyond Bitcoin together each week, and that's available on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Our monthly blockchain breakfasts, and of course, our monthly portal webinars um, with guest special guest speakers. So tonight we're delighted to have uh, another outstanding speaker, um, and he is one of my favourite commentators in the space. Um, to introduce him, um, please welcome Mark Whitten, CIO of Portal Asset Management. Over to you, Mark. Thank you very much. So thanks for joining us, Rolf. Sorry for the, um, the slight delay this morning. It's a bit of a, a, bit of a comedy of errors. Um, we've been following and been subscribing to uh, your, your Real Vision uh, website and webinars for the past sort of two years. We found them invaluable, you know, really great insight, both on the macro and on the crypto side. Um, just to introduce you to, to our wider audience, um, Raul has held several senior roles in the financial markets over the past 32 years, from running equity and equity derivative sales to hedge funds at Goldman's as well as to finding and managing a global macro hedge fund for GLG Partners, which is one of the largest hedge fund firms in the world. Um, in 2005, he began publishing the Global Macro Investor, GMI, which was a world-known and renowned institutional investment strategy publication read by the world's biggest hedge funds, 
Asset Managers and Family Offices, which he still publishes to this day. And in 2014, Raul co-founded Real Vision, the preeminent financial media platform and community. And that covers extensively both traditional asset markets and digital assets, um, as well as traditional asset markets. And he's in the process now of turning Real Vision into a Web3 community, which we're, we're really pleased to be part of. Raul has been investing in crypto and digital assets since 2013, when he wrote the first ever macroeconomic analysis of Bitcoin in GMI. And in 2021, he co-founded two new businesses to capture opportunities in the, in the rise of um, Web3, Exponential Age Asset Management, which is an asset management firm that invests in digital asset hedge funds and science, and Magic Studios, which is a token venture studio that creates token economies and participates in the world's large uh, cultural communities, music, sports, entertainment, and fashion, which we think is, is probably going to be one of the largest growth areas going forward. So Ralph currently lives in the Cayman Islands and he's been gracious enough to join us early, early this morning and we welcome you. Just to, um, to kind of get things going, just to, you know, biography is often destiny. I just thought we'd maybe start off with how did you get into crypto? What sort of attracted you to it and sort of your evolution in the space over the past call it decade? Yeah, mine's quite a good story. I was in Spain in 2008. You know, I moved to Spain 2005 and was there up until 2014. And writing Global Macro Investor, I was kind of at the epicenter of the financial system. I came from Goldman and this huge hedge fund. I kind of knew everybody. And my analysis led me to forecast that the financial crisis was coming and then the European crisis. And there's all of us at the center of the financial system kind of knowing what was going on, but nobody else did. And it kind of caught people by surprise. I was, you know, in Europe, we almost lost our entire banking system and almost all the sovereign debt blew up. I mean, it was super serious at the time. And I realized that the financial system was broken. There was excessive debts that could never be solved. And I thought, well, what are we going to do about this? I mean, my journey actually bifurcated. I thought I need to educate people, which was the start of Real Vision. But I want to do something about the security of assets, because if we don't think if we don't own stuff that we think we own, we don't we've got nothing. And the Lehman crisis told us about rehypothecation and the lack of ownership of assets. And then in Europe, when they took your money out of the Cypriot banking system and just gave everybody a haircut when you're supposed mm. to be a depositor, terrified me. <laughs> So I joined up with a few family offices and we thought we were going to solve this by setting up the world's safest bank that had no lending against it. So you basically just hold US treasuries, et cetera. And it was actually really hard to do. And we went around a number of countries, Singapore, Switzerland, the UK, uh, the US on that endeavor. When somebody tapped me on the shoulder in 2012 and said, hey, listen, you should look at Bitcoin. And I'd seen the rise of Bitcoin, but I dug into it and realized that there were two components here that were really interesting. One was the scarce asset itself could play a role like gold in the financial system. But the blockchain, that's what got me interested because I thought, well, if this is the proven recorded ownership of everything, then the entire financial industry, that was my, that was my understanding at the time, that the entire financial industry could go on blockchain rails. And we solve a lot of problems because you kind of know at the end of the daisy chain of collateral, who owns what. So I dug in wrote the first macro paper 2013, because I want to understand, okay, how do you, how the hell do you value this thing? And around the time of the Bitcoin white paper, there was a talk about it being digital gold. So I thought, okay, well, let's do the analysis of the above ground supply of gold, the known uh, global reserves, um, and then back that out versus Bitcoin. And I got Bitcoin in 2013, when I wrote the piece was 200 bucks. Um, and my analysis said, 
on a fair value base basis versus gold, it would be worth a million dollars. And that was with gold at the time around 1300. So not a million miles from where we are today. So I was like, okay, wow, this is the best risk reward I've ever seen in my entire career. But I have to assume I'm a complete idiot. So I discount myself by 90% and say, okay, your analysis says 1 million. Let's assume all your maths are wrong. You're totally stupid. Let's call it 100 grand. At 100 grand with a $200 price, it was still the best risk reward I'd ever, ever seen in my entire life. So I bought it and I held it. And it went up 5x in six weeks. And obviously, I'm now thinking I'm George Soros. I'm probably the best investor the world has ever seen, maybe. Um, and then it falls 85%. But my hypothesis, look, I'm a long-term macro guy. So I don't really care about that. I treated it like an option. I figured it could go to zero. You know, this is very early days. You know, we, we had to get through Mount Gox and all of the stuff that we've been through within this space. So I was like, I don't care if it goes to zero. I sized it accordingly. And it fell 85%. But I was still interested in it. Um, and continue to watch it. And then before you know it, 2017 comes along and it's now up 10x from where I bought it. And this was the time of the forking wars. Um, this is when they're trying to fork Bitcoin to different chains. And I'm like, I don't really understand what even this means. We now have a better understanding of how this all works, but we didn't then. And I'm like, I'm going to get out. I've made 10 times my money. It's been a fantastic bet amount. It then went up another 10x. <laughs> so I got out of 2,000. It goes up to 20,000, right? Which was uh, mind-blowing. Yeah. But again, I, I was like, I'm, it's fine. But I had a hypothesis that this was not dead. You know, it's, it was going to go through a cycle. It had gone through a hype cycle. It needs to calm down. Again, we fall like 85%. And... My hypothesis was that macro and crypto were going to meet because I came into this space saying we need this asset. And, and the next recession, once the money printing starts again and the unease over who owns what surfaces again, it's going to come to importance. So 2020 comes along, March 2020, Bitcoin drops. It's in this beautiful chart pattern. I get long again, this time irresponsibly long. I've put 100% of my liquid net worth into it. And, um, and off we went. And uh, then my hypothesis built out as I started to understand much deeper about Ethereum, um, understanding network effects, how to price cryptocurrencies, because the market was floundering to do that. And I, I figured out this Metcalfe's law thing, so I'm doing a lot of work on that, understanding how these networks grow, what it all means. And then you know, my privileged position in the middle of real vision and the middle of the entire kind of Web3 community has allowed me to learn from the best of the best about where the hell this is all going. And as as we talked about earlier on, the tokenization of culture, you know, all sorts of things from ticketing through to the metaverse is all ahead of us and people are building fast. So, so I had a question on this, uh, you know, Raul, I've been following uh, your work for quite some time and I think your stance on Bitcoin, I think, you know, being in the industry for such, you know, for, for such a long time, having built various systems, I think when it, when it came to your analysis of Bitcoin as digital gold and what you've looked into as inflation hedge in early days, and that all made sense, but love to get your perspective on how do you see the variance of price and value with NFTs? Um, so tokenization of culture, um, you know, and, and you've been quite vocal in terms of, you know, uh, the value of these NFTs, especially the PFPs that have emerged and where I have struggled with both as a technologist as well as 
looking into this as an investment instrument is the valuation of these things. NFTs are meant to be unique, meant to be things that are valuable to an individual from their perspective, just like our cultures are. So how do you put a value to it uh, as an investment instrument? I think your, well, your, your, uh, a lot of your analysis was more towards that this is the future, this is where we're heading. Love to get uh, your perspective now. Okay, so uh, there's, since there's two perspectives on, on NFTs. One is because of you being a CTO, you're a systems thinker, there is no systematic way to understand how people price culture. You would never come up with the price of a Louis Vuitton handbag or a Damien Hirst piece of art, right? Because these they're mainly driven by human emotion. Greed, tribalism, the desire to feel um, status. You know, these things are very hard to price. So let's go back to first principles because that will probably help you understand this. What is it about NFTs that's so powerful? So in a digital world, we have excess of abundance. Think of cloud compute. Think of mobile data costs. Think of anything in the digital world. They essentially go to zero in value. So everything goes to zero that gets digitized because of Moore's law and a bunch of other reasons. Now, that is a huge problem if we're living in a digital world. Here we are on this Zoom call, we're all around the world, it's incredible value because it costs us basically nothing to do. On a data network that basically costs us nothing. Right? So how the hell is this all gonna work? NFTs stop that. They anchor and create scarcity in a digital world of no scarcity. That's the big breakthrough here. Just because it came from art is irrelevant. It's the digital scarcity in a world where everything else digital goes to zero creates investable assets but how do you value these things well how do you value a community i don't know and it's difficult you know behind me i've got a bunch of nfts displayed in my token frame <laughs> now, so some of those are communities that i'm interested in others are experiments that i'm interested in like Yuga Labs that runs Board Ape Yacht Club, amongst other things, I'm experimenting, I'm interested in, can they build a media brand from the ground up? I don't really think it's a community, I think it's a media brand. Okay, that's very interesting. And that was probably the fastest accretion of value ever seen. <laughs> it was 250,000% by the original Board Ape Yacht Club holders in a year. I've never seen anything like that. Is it worth that? Possibly, but I don't know. Right, we have to see, uh, do they get the traction in the underlying value of that community? Others are smaller communities where basically it's a membership. Many people here on this call will have paid ridiculous amounts of money to the membership of a golf course. For me, the membership of a golf course should have negative value because I, I, I don't like golf and I don't like golf culture, right? So here we have a difference in pricing. Negative value, I'll pay to take it off my hands. And somebody else will pay anything to get that debenture, to be a debenture holder of a fancy golf club, mm. you know, in Melbourne or somewhere, you know, some old golf club. So it's the value that that club holds to you, the people, the network, what it represents for you, all of those things. These things are really difficult to understand. That's why people are grasping. I think over time we'll develop some models of understanding. And I think it's going to be about, about Metcalfe's law. But because we have a scarce supply of these assets, we need to understand some sort of scarcity model as well. So I'm not sure we've yet been able to model those out, 
Um, so I don't really know the answer yet, which is why I don't invest massively in the space. I have, you know, some NFTs because I'm interested in the culture and where it's going, and it makes me have a skin in the game to follow it. Oh, that's brilliant. Thank you, Raul. Raul, you often say that, you know, the three things that make the you know, crypto markets move is number one, it's the, the macro, and then number two is liquidity, and then three would be the sort of network adoption and, and usage. And I mean, you know, the macro at the moment is, is you know, to see things as they are, not worse than they are. The macro is challenging. Um, I, I'm, I'm not 100% in, in congruence thinking that the, you know, that inflation has peaked. I still get concerned around food and, and potentially fertilizer and energy and the sort of deindustrialization we're seeing in Europe causing inflation to be a bit stickier than we expect. But crypto, particularly Bitcoin, has held up really well in that makes it, it hasn't made new lows relative to you know the last time we saw rates go above call it three percent. So I thought you know maybe we could just get your views on you know number one a little bit on the macro environment and then number two, you know, looking forward. I know that you you know the, one of your latest webinars was quite bullish on on Avalanche. And I'd be keen to understand you know why from a network adoption and usage perspective, um, you know where you see things going. So the macro, the macro is bloody awful. It's the largest, most concentrated tightening of rates that I think we've seen almost in history. Mm. We have the largest tightening of financial conditions on a broad measure, as opposed to, you know, a lot of people use the Goldman measure. That's not that broad because it uses equity markets and it's kind of, it's a weird kind of uh, feedback loop between equities and, and that. But if I, I, what I did was use uh, the rate of change of rates, the rate of change of the dollar and the rate of change of commodity prices. And it gives you a understanding of how tight money is. The other way you can look at it is the number of central banks as a percentage of total central banks raising rates. Those kind of things give us a growth shock that is ahead that we're starting to see that is quite sharp and severe. Mm. So we're talking about something where, you know, GDP growth falls 3% or so. So a really decent sized recession, but it looks like I, my, in, my forward looking indicators suggest that the bottom of this growth shock comes actually pretty soon, like March 2023. And so if the bottom comes, then you get to the recovery side. So, you know, to David Rosenberg's point, you know, it ends up being about 18 months or two years because we probably started some sort of recession at the beginning of this year. So. The macro is bad now and is going to get worse. The narrative you will see is, well, the macro is about to get terrible. All assets must fall. But once you start doing things like doing the year-on-year -year rate of change of the S&P or the NASDAQ, mm. they're actually pricing in an ISM, the Institute of Supply Managers Survey, of about 40. Mm. So that's pretty severe recession as it is. Could they price in a bit further? Could it be at one lower stab? Sure. But these are forward-looking assets. And what they look for is the turn. Why the turn? Because that's somewhere in the next six months, the central banks will most likely go, okay, unemployment's coming up, inflation's coming down. We have to look after, you know, our mandates are unemployment and inflation. Inflation's mm -hmm. going to be maybe stickier or higher. I don't believe it will be. I think it actually goes negative. Um, but unemployment is going to be coming up we need to at least stop 
Okay, so if we stop quantitative tightening, if we stop raising rates, what we're going to get is, sorry, I think this again, you're, you might be able to mute them from there. Yeah. Um, so if the rate of change stops, right, you've, you've stopped the pressure on markets. Now, it doesn't mean they explode higher. It's not 2021 all over again. Mm. But if the pressure stops because the rate change, because QT stops and they stop raising rates because they want to see how bad this is. Okay, so the probabilities then come of rate cuts. Or if not, at least it's going to be stability. They're unlikely to raise rates higher. Mm. Okay, so that's generally good for risk assets because they're forward looking. So that's where it comes into crypto. So crypto is really interesting. Same with technology stocks is they are in an exponential logarithmic uptrend because they are network adoption models. So in technology stocks, you know, we've got the relentless ongoing ridiculous pace of rise of AI, robotics, EV, space, Internet of Things, 5G, 6G. I mean, um, genetic sciences, all of these things are all coming together at the same time. It's the fastest pace of change humanity will ever go through. I mean, it's, and, you know, it's hard enough for us to deal with on a societal level, but that's not stopping. Part of that is blockchain technology, digital assets. They're in the same exponential trend, but maybe even faster because crypto with 300 million users is the fastest adoption of any technology the world has ever seen, twice the speed of the internet. So what you're... Thinking. So if you can visualize is you've basically got this massive uptrend that is exponential in nature, but when you put it on a log trend, it's quite nice and smooth, but you've got these big swings. Those big swings are driven by the macro. So what we've done is we're at the bottom of the macro cycle. The beach ball is now being held underwater. But don't forget, every day there's new people building in the ecosystem. There's new adoption. People like Ticketmaster have issued 10 million NFTs without anybody realizing. The scale of what is happening is ridiculous. So the beach ball is held underwater. The moment quantitative tightening or rate rises stop, the beach ball rises above the water. You can't hold it down. And so that is why I am incredibly interested at this moment in time right here right now because i think we're getting very close to the point where growth implodes mm. we've already seen two quarters of negative gdp in the us we've already seen housing rollover we've already seen supply chain issues ease we've already seen most commodity prices fall 50 percent we've we've seen we've already seen the dollar explode higher the dollar's hugely deflationary because the largest exporting nations in the world, Japan, Germany, China, have all seen their currencies decline massively. So they're now selling finished goods at much lower prices. So the macro turn is very close. When we look at on-chain analytics, we start to see things that only ever happen in these massive bear market sell-offs, the 2000 um, 14 sell off, the 2017 sell off, stuff like that. We also are at the bottom of the logarithmic trend channel, two standard deviations oversold. That's usually a good one. We're at the five year exponential moving average. That level has proven to be about the best risk reward you can ever find. Things like, if we use technical analysis, things like the RSI 
are um, as oversold as they have been at the bottom of every other cycle. So we've got this massively oversold crypto market at the time where the macro narrative is at peak. Everyone's like, inflation is going to be 20% forever and Europeans are going to be dying in the streets because there's no food and they're going to, you know, they can't afford to heat their houses, right? That's the narrative right now. Mm. Okay, so how much worse can this be? And any rate of change means that the risk-reward of digital assets from here, normally when you get to this confluence of events, the risk-reward is somewhere between 20 to 50x. Yeah. Now, it depends where you are on the risk curve, which is going to ask the second part of your question, Mark. So Bitcoin is the, the least attractive asset because it has... Um, least attractive of the major assets because it has more stability, further network effects. Therefore, as you get further network effects, your growth comes down over time. So, you know, where would Bitcoin go in the next cycle? Who knows? But let's say 200,000. But then we look at the network adoption effects in Ethereum. How many people are building on the Ethereum network? The ability to now get yield on the network. What's that going to mean for DeFi? Who's going to build DeFi on top of this new kind of benchmark yield rate that's coming out of this? All of the people who are building NFTs, all of the stuff going on. Okay, that's mainly happening on Ethereum right now. Great. Ethereum's slow and Ethereum's expensive. So the market will seek the path of which they can get more stuff done at a faster pace. And they will make trade-offs. Trade-off is decentralization uh, versus speed and cost. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So when you move out the speed and cost curve, you basically arrive at Solana, um, Avalanche, Algorand, a whole bunch of these layer ones. So, you know, then you start splitting out those assets and say, okay, how do I differentiate? And it's quite difficult, you know, unless you're a technologist. But basically how I perceive it is Solana seems like it wants to go for the masses mm. and create these kind of onboarding experiences front ends you know they've got a mobile phone that you know they've got amazing nft marketplace they they seem like they want to get involved in the public then you've got um avalanche and that seems to be one to be more technical we've got these subnets you can do your things it's a bit more technical and we can probably financialize real assets on it that seems to be their narrative algorand somewhere like the financial marketplace stuff like this so I just look at these and say, okay, what we're going to see is the market probably Bitcoin underperforms, Ethereum next, whichever one of these, and I don't know which ones, will do pretty well. Mm. And then there'll be new tokens of which we don't really know yet coming in that solve more problems where we, you'll see the thousand X upsides that we've seen in past cycles. And then there's a bunch of shit that goes to zero. Well, it doesn't go to zero. Mm. It just, you know, goes up and down with the, um, with the speculative hype flow. Um, so that's kind of how I'm seeing that. So in, in the asset management side of what I'm doing, 
we're going further out the risk curve now, finding people who are taking those bets because those bets are going to be more important drivers of returns than ETH or Bitcoin over time. Can I just ask you, you know, so over the weekend, I, we attended the, um, the Australian Crypto Conference and one of the big topics of discussion was regulation because of the White House paper that came out. And there's a lot of questioning around when will institutions get involved? I mean, we've seen Brevin Howard launch, you know, a billion dollar fund. We've seen now, you know, NASDAQ, Fidelity, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of players looking to add both retail products as well as, you know, for more formalization from an institutional point of view. But what do you think is holding back these institutions if they're looking at the asset classes and going, well, real estate, fixed income, no real visibility of earnings in equities. And even though crypto and Bitcoin is behaving like a sort of long duration asset or a high growth tech you know, stock at the moment, why do you think we, we've seen this, this relaxation? I mean, cash levels are probably at the highest they've, they've ever been, not ever, but the highest they've been in probably. Could when, have you, when have you ever found an institution who buys at the low? What yeah. we need is FOMO, right? Most of them, I mean, I've spoken to a lot of them. And, you know, giants like Apollo, they're all over the space. The giants, uh, giant pension funds, giant endowments, the big sovereign wealth funds, the Middle East, everybody's all over it. The reason they haven't allocated a lot, a lot of them have done VC first because hmm. it's easy to get through investment committee. It's just like a technology investment. Um, but then they've struggled with product. So, you know, they can't invest in individual hedge funds. It's just too hard for them because, you know, they can't do due diligence on custody risk, DeFi risk, stuff like that. They just don't know how to do it yet. It's too new for them. So, you know, fun to fun products like you guys have built and I've built, you know, those are going to be the kind of products that they need, much like it was for family offices. So I think they are all super interested. I know that hedge funds is the next part of the space that they will come into because I've seen this rule book, this playbook many times before. Um, they're all doing the work on it and you need that thing that makes them not feel like idiots, which is they need the price to go up. And I know that's stupid, <laughs> but it is what it is, right? That's why family offices and high net worth investors have been much better at capturing the alpha in this space than institutions because they don't get fired. They don't get Sorry. fired for doing the wrong thing. Um, and regulation at the margin helps. Family offices and high net worth tend to be uh, more risk-taking because they're in control of their own capital. So the fiduciary duty they owe to themselves, so they will say, I understand it's not fully regulated yet, but I will take the risk. And they've been compensated for that risk by doing so. Institutions can't do that because their fiduciary duty to these millions of people and you know all of that kind of stuff. So regulatory clarity helps them and so people look at this regulation space and really we need it if you want adoption this libertarian ideal of nobody's going to regulate our money this is our new digital yeah. money you can't do it is a fantasy because we all live in a physical jurisdiction and the physical jurisdiction wants its share of taxes because you benefit you get benefit from being a societal member mm. now if you move elsewhere i live in the cayman Islands, so i don't pay direct taxes sure we have taxes on import duties and other stuff they always find a way to get money from you but um but that's the thing is if you live in a country you can't avoid taxes they want to make sure they get their fair share because don't forget the world is pretty much bankrupt right now yeah. and they need to make sure that they collect as much taxes as possible so 
Um, I think regulation is a good thing. I think it's coming. I think the space where the battle is going to get drawn up really is DeFi because DeFi needs KYC AML um, and it can't by its very structure. So we're seeing people spinning up new institutional KYC AML versions of DeFi um, protocols, um, which I think is useful. So that means we'll end up with a bifurcated world like, you know, some of your funds and in fact half the world's funds are in the cayman islands why is that nobody's avoiding taxes you're doing it because it's a tax neutral jurisdiction that allows mm. a fair and clear regulatory framework for any dispute legal dispute but it also allows international investors to pay their own taxes in their home country it makes it easy so can you do so will we have offshore DeFi and onshore DeFi? for sure because you can't impose us DeFi restrictions on uh, an investor in South Africa. You know, I, so, I so I think we will figure out different ways of doing it and there'll be bifurcated markets, but institutions will get what they need, which is they need compliance so they can't get taken to court. So, Roll, in the last week, we've seen EDX turn around and make a statement that they intend to create a, um, an exchange, a stock exchange, not dissimilar to what we're all used to dealing with. Um, and NASDAQ has turned around and also said we're providing custodian services. I couldn't help myself but calculate out that the owners of EDX, which is Citadel, Fidelity and, Swab, and Charles Swab, together were worth about, had funds under management of about $13.5 trillion. And the total capitalization of this space at the moment is one trillion. So there's these giants coming in trying to work out how to get part of this action, this space. It's not our secret any longer, clearly. Um, and, and as they're coming into this space, you know, I do wonder whether we should be frightened, enthusiastic, or just flattered that this sort of money is lining up next to us. What is magic about this space is we all get to own a part of the network. So whatever they do on the space is going to benefit us if we own parts of the network. That's by owning the tokens. So I don't really care. As long as I've got my stake of the network, however the network is built out and whoever builds on top of it. So what they're saying is we like the network. We like the technology. We want to build on top of the technology and we want to build the ability to custody and transfer assets. Right? That was my hypothesis from day one that that was going to happen. It's just taken time. And I've spoken to the London Stock Exchange, I've spoken to everybody, they're all going to do it eventually. I've spoken to Dubai Stock Exchange, they're all going to do it. We've seen the European Investment Bank, the EIB, issue bonds on Ethereum. They're all testing it. So my hypothesis has been most traditional assets are about 200 to $300 trillion in market cap, whether that's real estate, bonds, equities. Um, and my guess is this will be the same because it's going to capture a share of a bunch of that. Um, so, you know, 13 trillion. Yep. Add that onto the, into the mix that gets us to $200 trillion of market cap. It's coming without question. The best thing is own the bloody token. You can, you can say, well, we don't want the institutions coming in. Well, you might as well profit from it. Own the token. So I own the ecosystem, invest in the hedge funds, do whatever, capture the alpha and the yes. beta of the space. And when you look at it, you know, there is $13.5 trillion current funds under management. Of course, they're talking about building an exchange, which in due course, hopefully, will mean that more traditional investors will just step into this space. Um, but when we're looking at this, um, 
you know, own the token aspect of it. Uh, you know, where, where, where these guys are really looking at trying to get some centralized action out there, but they're on ramps at the end of the day. And if we keep getting all these exactly. on ramps, then our ownership of, you know, blockchain derivative products is then going to be boosted because at the moment there seems to be only about $400 billion worth. Cause if you take Bitcoin or Ethereum out of it, that's all that's left. So, you know, this, this, this balloon that you've got under the water there, um, it's, you know, you take two coins out of it and it's pretty small and there seems to be a lot chasing it. I agree. It's, it looks like there's, as you say, an exponential age coming. Yeah. The other one that everybody will fight over and shout at each other over Twitter over is central bank digital currencies. It's the same thing. It's just an on-ramp and an off-ramp. And once you realize that, the moment that that happens, they're basically allowing all money to be transferred over blockchain rails. Right, so that means the ability to move in and out of these two worlds, this new parallel, parallel financial system and the existing fit, uh, system become almost frictionless. Well, if they're gonna give these wallets out to 300 million Europeans and 300 million Americans and a billion, 1.3 billion Indians, what is the probability that digital assets, that $400 million billion worth of value remains at $400 billion? About zero, right? This is how good the bet is, right? It's, it, it, it's almost impossible to architect an outcome where over a period of time, prices are not massively higher. Yeah, okay. And I know that sounds ludicrous and it sounds hopium, and it, it, but it, it, there is almost no way. We've got too far in network adoption when the central banks all said, yeah, we're going to join the party. That to me was the signal is right. The game is one. Regulation is the noise. It's a few speed bumps on route, but it's one. It's like having a, it's like having an option on technology with sort of massive upside. And you just kind of have to hold on to that option. And, and the option's gotten a lot more valuable in this latest correction. And unlike an option, it's got no maturity date, right? Okay. So it's an unlimited length option, which is incredibly attractive. I'm, I'm very, you know, you said something earlier, uh, I think you said Ticketek had issued, I think, 10 million tickets on, in, in terms of NFTs. And I'm quite interested in Magic Studios. And I mean, I was always thinking, how would this be brought to the masses? You know, and, and particularly the younger generation, I think it's gaming, it's entertainment, it's the arts. Um, you know, I think they're early adopters and innovators. Could you tell us a bit more about, you know, sort of Magic Studios and also how you see this tokenization playing out, particularly as it goes into the more traditional asset classes? I mean, I think the big query you mentioned in one of your webinars, everyone will ask you on a daily basis, you know, when's real estate coming? When are we going to tokenize real estate and so on? But maybe just give us your thoughts on that, on tokenization, because that's, that's definitely going to be a, so, another way to add value. So I've taken three big bets, four big bets in this space. Because I think it's the best opportunity I've ever seen in my life, as I've explained before. One was investing myself with as much money as I possibly could. Two was pivoting real vision around this, because I think it's faster growing, more engaging, and community is the future of all business models. I then also had the hypothesis that the entire financial system is going to invest in this. So that was why I built an asset management business. And then I wanted to. And then I knew that the masses were going to come and the masses come really via, you know, stuff like we talked about, like, you know, securities and stuff, trading on blockchain rails, et cetera. Less interesting to me. What was really interesting was the tokenization of culture. 
And the hypothesis is the 63, I think it was McKinsey said this, the $63 trillion of global intangibles on balance sheets around the world. I, what is the value of brand and culture? Well, we don't know, but we kind of know it's a lot. But then I look at the share price of Disney and it's $250 billion. Disney's probably the largest, deepest cultural brand in the world by a long way. Everybody has a connection to Disney um, in certain ways. So if you tokenize the Disney ecosystem, whether it's Marvel comics or original cartoons or whatever, all of the stuff in the Disney archives, all of the legend of Disney, it's probably worth a trillion dollars or two. That's the power of tokenization. So at corporate level, you are highly incentivized to do this if you have cultural currency. Cultural currency are those brands, communities that have community and culture, deep culture. Where do those tend to lie? Sports. We all know that, right? Anybody who goes to a sports game, you know how deep culture lies, how valuable that is in and above common sense, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's something really deep. Music is another one. The other one we talked about before is fashion. Fashion is culture. Some people don't get it. That's okay. But why Bernard Arnault from Louis Vuitton, LVMH, is in the top five richest people in the world is he understands that scarcity and status go hand in hand and humans just desire that amongst all things people want to be more than just a number and <clears throat> fashion does that um, and we could probably throw arts into that and then there is yeah the entertainment industry so that's films um books book um, yeah book franchises tv franchises i mean they're huge so those i think are the largest cultural communities the other two on top would be religion and politics, which are not two I'd want to touch in this. Um, but those, so all I know is every brand, the gigantic brand, everybody in the Web3 space is starting from the ground up, building like Yuga Labs from the ground up, these ecosystems. Mm. But every giant brand in the world is going to have to go this way. Yeah. So I want to be there and I want to get the next. 100 500 million people into web3 now how do we do that because people don't care about it's on solana it's on ethereum it's on polygon it's like it's like the noise and the ridiculous complication of this space needs to go away but people are doing this in the background fast people like ticketmaster so ticketmaster genius right tickets was always my hypothesis that's the entry into all of this is tickets mm. because we all go on planes and on your apple phone or whatever it is you've got your boarding pass right it's digital we use apple pay or whatever system it is on your phone and it's digital so i was just thinking well it's pretty easy to turn these into proof of attendance protocols or nfts and then you have value like i've got my live aid ticket from 1985 here and I keep hold of it. And I've got a drawer, in fact, next to me, full of concert tickets I've been to my whole life. I love music. So imagine if they were tokens that I could have and that would identify me with the community. And if it's in my wallet, then you can see, oh, Rao likes this, 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 and this, and this. Mm. Well, think what that does for the marketing industry. So Ticketmaster have basically 
created a digital wallet, much like your boarding pass when you go on your phone for your ticket to an event. Mm. And then what they do, you go to the event, they, they give you NFTs. So now, because they built in their wallet Web3, you don't even know or care what blockchain it's on, it's irrelevant. You've now got an NFT that you went to a XYZ football game or you saw this concert. And what they're doing is building out a social graph. And what you'll do is more and more people get traction. This is what Starbucks are doing. This is what everybody's doing. So it's coming at scale. The really sharp marketing people are realizing you're creating a new social graph that allows you not to use Google, Facebook, and all the other world. Uh, it's wallets. It's very early stage in all of this. But also think about ticketing. The number of times we've all lost money on a hotel room because last minute we've had to cancel. You don't never get your money back, right? So imagine if that was an NFT. I could just put it on a marketplace, sell it at a 50% discount. Thank you, I've got rid of my ticket. Somebody else buys them, 50% discount. The hotel's happy because they replace a person who comes to the bar in the evening, has a few glasses of wine, eats a nice steak dinner. They get their extra margin on top because an empty hotel room doesn't give extra margin. Everybody's a winner. Same with airline tickets. So why should it not go? So I try and think, how do you get a billion people involved? It's these kind of things. Um, and so that's what Science Magic Studio. So we know the financial industry is going to come and invest in this. We know that culture is going to move this way and is moving this way. So we want to cover those bets. And we know that all businesses are pivoting around community, which is why, you know, at Real Vision, we've we, we realized this about two or three years ago and started to pivot the entire business around community and Web3. I think, Dim, I think it's brilliant. I think Web3, you know, is going to be such a, a game changer in terms of the internet of value and kind of moving ownership away from the incumbents towards entrepreneurs. I think that sort of... Oh, but the one thing, one thing important to note, Mark, yeah. the incumbents are coming. I've spoken yeah. to them all. I've spoken to the Googles, I've spoken to the Facebooks, the Metas, I've spoken to everybody from LinkedIn to, I mean, you name it, they understand this and they're coming too. But we might be able to leverage their networks finally. Um, yeah, and, because and they've the, got the billions. They do, but, and, and you know, I think I've always been, you know, very much an admirer of, of the entrepreneurial spirit in, in, you know, they've got, you know, they'll keep taking shots and shots and shots until they get it right. You know, they, it's kind of like, you know, the, the income, it's not that they'll lose and, and become, you know, and vanish, but they're definitely at the margin. Once you become the biggest, you know, the biggest advertiser in the world or the biggest host of advertising in the world, there's only one way to go, right? You know, it's, one, it's, like, it's like once you get to the top, it's pretty hard to hold on to that position, particularly if you're getting at the fringe, at the margin, you're getting, you're getting nipped away. I think the final sort of thing I'd like to just maybe discuss briefly is there's a lot of talk around CBDCs and will they sort of crowd out what, you know, what's happening in the ecosystem or will it become something that you know, stifles innovation from a regulatory point of view? Like it's, there's a lot of kind of, con not concern, but there's a lot of, there's, not a, there's a lack of clarity around how it's going to work and then the philosophical side of, well, you know, is it really, it's not decentralized, it's a central bank digital currency, and therefore there's the ability, you know, you spoke earlier about, you know, Cyprus and the bank bail-ins and so on. There's an ability for governments to potentially impose, you know, control via these CBDCs. Um, I just thought maybe I'll get your thoughts on that, and then maybe we'll take a few questions from the audience. I, you know, it, it always amazes me, this, the whole argument around, well, the CBDCs, they're going to control you. I'm like, like they don't have access to your bank account now, like they can't impose a cost of money, cheapness or expensiveness of borrowing, lending money now, 
like they can't tax you. It's like they do this anyway. And if you think it's all about privacy, tell me how much actual transactions you do in in notes, physical notes, virtually none, right? None of us do anymore. So we use our credit cards. They've got all of that data. Hmm. And then we're on Google or Amazon. They've got all of that. We gave up our privacy years ago. It's, it's, you know, people are just making a deal of something that does not exist. And that essence comes from the people who want to hold gold bars and move them around the world. Well, good luck if you want to buy a t-shirt online with a gold bar. It ain't going to happen. So I, look, Governments will be governments. Our job is to live in a democracy, to vote them in or out if they if they overstep their mark. Now, governments have been more have been more controlling over time, and part of that is to do with the societal problems that that the debt and demographics have created. And I don't think that's going away. Now, central bank digital currencies allow them to track the money around the system easier. I get that, but they're going to do that anyway. I mean, blockchain, Ooh. every transaction is available to them. It's available to everybody. There's no way of hiding. So what, what do we fear here? The one thing you can do is move jurisdiction. Ooh. You know, like, like anybody in Australia can come to the Cayman Islands. And because you're a Commonwealth country, um, you basically come here and you don't pay tax, which is why there's a lot of Australians and Kiwis and South Africans and Brits and Canadians here. So that means if you don't like your jurisdiction, you can move or you can vote. Um, but the central bank digital currency is a cheaper, faster, more efficient way of the transfer of money. The mm. private sector led the way by showing them how it can be done. But India did it at scale before everybody else. I mean, it's got 1.3 billion people now in their banking system because they issued a payment system called UPI, which was a almost a peer-to-peer -peer free payment system before anybody else. Digital system of identity called Adha and allowed then the building of technology on top of what's known as India stack. So all your KYC documentation, everything else, you can now transfer on a fingerprint to open a mobile phone account or a bank account. That's India, which is the most bureaucratic country in the world. And that was done not on blockchain. But they're going to have a central bank digital currency because Singapore is advising them on how to do it. But what it did for India was remarkable. And we will do that to the world. So I'm incredibly encouraged by it. I'm also encouraged by, and a, a lot of people philosophically don't like this, but in a world where we don't really have a lot of interest rates, where we've got this debt demographics issue, we have to get better in how we deal with fiscal policy and monetary policy because yeah. it's so blanket right now. It's unnecessary. Once you've got a central bank digital currency, you can have different interest rates for different types yeah. of people. Right? That's good, I think. Yeah, you might not like it because you're wealthy and you'll get lower interest rates and because they want your money in the system, but the people who are savers get highest. There's a number of ways bid offer spreads on borrowing versus lending for poorer people, direct transfer payments like we're seeing now with electricity bills and all of this stuff. There's a lot of power that can come from this. The ability, and that's you know behavioral economics as well, incentive systems to allow society to do certain things. Um, but it can also be used negatively. But mm. everything in humanity is like that, right?
you know, the penal system is like, everything is like that. So I just don't think it's, it's a great change, but I think it could be very powerful. Very powerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, Roll, um, we've got some enlightened people here in Australia, and one of them is a gentleman in the Reserve Bank who's about 73 years of age, and he came up with this wonderful statement when they said the Australians were considering a CBDC, like so many countries are, and he said, if we get that, there'll be no need for any cryptocurrencies. I love that statement. I thought that was a beauty. Um, but while, while we go there, we've got a few questions that have come through in the sidebar here, and I'll just read them out if I may. Um, one of them says the phrase NFT has become known for many scams and going out of and, and going out of fashion. Um, will it be used as a phrase or will it be another protocol that you think the future phrase might be? Or will it brand, rebrand itself? <laughs> I don't think we'll even think of the word NFTs eventually. It's like even the term cryptocurrency is not really used as much anymore. Mm. We now use digital assets more. And these are just digital assets. We won't even think of them. And the scam element, everything that's new that accrues value meaningfully ends up having scams around it. And we saw this with ICOs in cryptocurrencies as they were back in 2017. We've seen this before. Uh, some regulation will help and just a general broadening out of the space where it doesn't yes. seem like it's a get rich quick scheme, but just a part of how we operate online. People get more discerning. But, you know, don't forget, yes. all of us have email scams every single day and it hasn't right. stopped. You click on the wrong link and you're in deep trouble. Right. And that's. That doesn't go away. It really is like the term multimedia. Do you remember it? But you don't say I'm going home to watch some multimedia tonight. It's just not there any longer. Um, so another question here, which listed companies do you think will benefit the most from crypto adoption? Um, is it the likes of the payment companies like Block or are there some other players that are interesting? Listed companies. Um, look, there's not a lot of listed companies around. The one that's most interesting to me is I like to keep it simple. I'm a macro guy. What we're saying is we think it goes from a trillion dollars to $200 trillion. Again, assume I'm an idiot, discount me by 90%, still going to $20 trillion. <laughs> so, so if that's the case, and we think therefore these are going to be used for all sorts of parts of society, and that owning the network is the important thing, then Coinbase seems a no-brainer. Mm. I know it's a US stock, so different people can trade that, but it's yeah. a no-brainer for me because it's 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 token agnostic. Volume is important. Yield is important because they help customers get hold of the yield and custody because we want to keep hold of our assets. They have it all. So it's been beaten down so badly. I think. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be interesting as a listed company. What do you think company? about their, their tie-up role with, with BlackRock 
and, and giving them access, giving Aladdin. I know the Coinbase guys really well. I mean, they are building a very high quality business. And that BlackRock is not the only people that they know. I mean, I, 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 get, and I know them really, really well. In fact, they were investors in Science Magic Studios. Um, they get it. They get it. The institutional quality of what they're going to build is huge. And on and on BlackRock, you know, they're quite as part of one of the questions. They're quite, you know, vocal around ESG. Um, you know, and, and do you, one of the questions in the from one of the audience participants is, do you see ESG investment vehicles as a flavor of the day? I, I kind of get the E in ESG, the SG part. I, I sometimes battle with, but you know, is, do you think it's another tax? Do you think there's um, ESG is going to kind of, you know, that was part of the merge in Ethereum? And I don't know if there's anything you want to talk about from that perspective. Again, in financial markets, our job is not to say what we think is right or wrong. The market doesn't care what you think is right or wrong. Mm. What it is, is it has, society has decided that it wants to move to greener technology and away from fossil fuels. And you can see why by what's going on in Europe right now, right? Had we made this transition 20 years ago, we wouldn't be having these issues. And we know the history of oil is the history of warfare, right? So let's just assume that moving away from fossil fuels and distributing, this is the key thing, distributing energy generation away from centralization is a good thing. So it's going to happen regardless of whether we want it, not whether we think it's a tax or not, it's irrelevant. So therefore invest with it. So the, there's only a few proof of work chains, Bitcoin being one of them. So it doesn't really affect the rest of the space now. It just means that with Ethereum being the other big daddy in the space, now being ESG compliance, essentially, it just means, and now has a yield, just makes it more attractive. Mm. Um, we are wearing so I just this think term. It's got to coalesce capital into these places. We might as well take advantage of the capital being coalesced. Yeah. Yeah. We are wearing the term or the phrase um, decoupling out here at Portal Asset Management. <laughs> We're really constantly saying there has to be a time that this space decouples from NASDAQ because it's not NASDAQ. It's not operating like NASDAQ. It's not growing like NASDAQ. When do you think the decoupling will occur? Or if it's not a when, it's why do you think the decoupling will occur when that time comes, Roll? So I think that correlated to the macro cycle and uncorrelated in their adoption cycle. So if you zoom out, the chart of Bitcoin or ETH looks nothing like the NASDAQ. When you zoom in on the sell-offs and periods, it looks like they are. And those are the macro cycles that dictate all assets. Why? Because we've had quantitative easing. Quantitative easing increases the number of currency, fiat currency in supply and lowers the value of the denominator. It rises all asset prices. But those that have higher adoption effects rise further, which is why crypto rises further than most technology stocks, which is why they rise further than oil stocks, you know, because it's where you are on the adoption curve in this particular world. So when you zoom out, they're not correlated. When you zoom in to here and now, they're correlated. And that's okay. I mean, what isn't correlated to the dollar? What isn't correlated to interest rates? What isn't? That's how money works. But zoom out, it's all noise. It depends on your time horizon. My time horizon is not in the 18-month time frame. My time horizon lies outside of the 18-month time frame, in which case I don't really care, is the point. 
And in fact, you know, that's why you think of these kind of sell-offs. If we just know the chart just keeps going bottom left to top right, every time it sells off a lot, you should just keep buying. It's as simple as that. Do you want to um... mark a couple of big questions there? Sure. Uh, well, a quick one, which is, um, is, is what will the Fed rate be, do you expect, over the next 12 and 24 months? Do you think we've, we're kind of going to see a lot more rate increases tightening, or do you think inflation's peaked? We've kind of covered that quite a bit. You seem to think Yeah, my, my general view is I think the fall, is, fall in growth, the fall in inflation, and the rise in unemployment is going to be faster than expected by the market currently. Mm. Um, I think the Fed, who knows what they say today, maybe they say, well, we're actually might go above 4% and we'll try and hold it there, right? Two year rates are already at 4%. So they're already suggesting they believe the Fed is going to go to 4% and hold it there. I don't think that's going to be the case. So at some point, we'll end up getting a free bet there somewhere. So whether it goes to four and a half, but then, you know, chances are it comes down to one and a half. So I'm kind I quite actually love the risk reward in the bond market right now. Super interesting. And, and you're not concerned around potentially the sort of what we see is the I mean the, the rise of these BRICS currencies kind of ending the sort of dominance of the dollar the petrodollar in particular. Do you think that's not going to maybe shift? You know, it's going to it's going to make the cost of debt significantly higher potentially in the US. Cost of exporting their inflation higher. Um, it takes time to get a, a currency block adoption. We've seen it with the euro. Never really got there. Yes, it was adopted, second largest currency, but it never became the big reserve currency that it could have been. We need to see a move away from the dollar because it's too big. It's 25, the US is 25% of world GDP and 87% of all world traders in dollars. Mm. And everybody's in debt in dollars. So there's a dollar shortage globally all the time. And it's a pain in the ass for everybody to deal with. Mm. Let's say you're Australia and a lot of your exports are commodities. Well, commodity cycle is driven by the US dollar. It's like, really? You know, why do we have to think about the US dollar cycle and our economy is driven by it? If we could just negate that. So I think it's the right move. Um, I don't think the US will have trouble funding its debt. It's got fiat currency. And also it can do yield curve control. We've seen it from Japan. So, you know, I, no, I don't buy the dollar's going to collapse story. It will weaken eventually, but I think it goes up again first. We've got a structural bull market in dollars that will not go away until we get some sort of plaza accord treatment whether it happens this time around or in the next dollar bull cycle you know when the dxy is not at 110 or 120 it goes up to 150 somebody's gonna have to do something at some point and the world is going to have to move away from using the us dollar because the this everybody's under control of the federal reserve it's crazy that there you are in australia talking about what the US central bank is going to do because it matters to you guys. It's ludicrous, but it does because all the funding markets are in bloody US dollars, everything. Every commodity that you sell is in US dollars. If you sell it to China, sell it to Japan, Australia's two biggest customers, you sell them in dollars. And it's nobody's currency. I mean, that's madness. Mike has a question on censorship. How important is censorship resistance to you? Do you believe that exchanges and staking services will run into issues over the long term in respect to sanction compliance? Again, I don't hold the libertarian view that we can do whatever the hell we want and get away with it. Mm. So, you know, we'll find you will find jurisdictions that you can do certain things in, jurisdictions that you can't, and that's just normal. 
Giovanni's kind of, it's, it's been a bit more of a statement around um, the expectation is that the Fed will keep on tightening because they seem to be on a mission of creating higher real yields to make risky assets less attractive. I think well, it depends how you look at real yields. So if you look at real yields, I use the five-year break-evens versus five-year rates. They are three standard deviations above trend. It's about as high as it's ever been. Yeah. The trend rate of real yields, five-year real yields, is negative 1% because of debt and demographics. So we are ultra super tight. Um, people mistakenly use CPI minus the bond market and go, look at how negative rates are. That's not how it works. That's not how financial markets price. The five-year break-even is about where it is. And we're almost 100 basis points positive yields now. This is very, very, very tight, considering the US is 100% of world GDP in debt. Mm. I don't think people understand this, the mechanics of debt. But this real rate, we cannot last. The last time we had debts of any magnitude like this was coming out of World War II. And they had to keep real rates negative for 20, 30 years. They have to. There's no way. Because you'll break the system. As we're about to see. We're about to see growth implode. Everyone's going to go, oh, yeah, real rates are really high. Yeah, I do agree. I think the great sort of debasement of currency has to continue. They can't, you know, you're in. There's no, way, there's no way out. So no meanwhile, way. we need to opt out and go to this parallel financial system, right? Because the great debasement, slow or fast, has to happen. The slow way is negative rates, negative real rates. The fast way is quantitative easing. Um, there's no other way out of this. Just the final sort of question for me is, you know, you, you deal with some, you know, really high pedigree investors, um, hedge funds and, and so forth. You know, what's the general sentiment out there? You know, are, are you contrarian at the moment with your view that, you know, things are kind of not as bad as we all seem and, and we're not going to be living on a farm with gold and, and guns or uh, are you kind of thinking that we you know what, what's your view relative to the the general consensus not that it should ever influence your investment decisions you know but just out of interest the general consensus is about as as apocalyptical as i've ever seen it in my entire life and i've been around a long time in this i've been around since 1990 it is utterly apocalyptical I mean, literally, people think they're going to be chipping frozen bodies off the streets in Europe who are starving because there's no wheat. They think that the stock market's going to go down 80% because the Fed are going to keep raising rates like Volcker. They think that inflation is never going to go away because there's a shortage of supply of commodities and demand destruction will never take away from that. They think, I mean, I have never seen anything like this. And then when you look at the asset allocation, the asset allocation is, in fact, I'm going to share it with you. It's my last final gift here. I think I've got it on my screen still. Uh, cash, <laughs> gold, cash. Uh, no, the asset allocation from the fund manager survey, um, the Merrill Lynch fund manager survey, I'm just going to, if you give me permission to share screen, I'm just going to show you just very quickly a bunch of, just to show the sentiment. You able to share now? Uh, yeah. Okay, so... Here is profit expectations. Everybody tells me there's another leg lower to come because profits are going to be, uh, earnings are going to evaporate. No shit, Sherlock. We're in a recession. And guess what? 85% of all investors say that that's going to happen. Hmm. Okay. So that tells you it's probably in the price. 
Mm. Let's have a look at risk appetite. It's the lowest risk appetite in the history of the BOA survey. Mm. Okay, that tells you that everybody is invested in the downside. The overweight, the underweight equities is the largest in the history of this survey. And this is a great survey. I've used it for 20 years. Versus they are they're so overweight that they're, that they're well above and beyond where the S&P is already priced. They're at cash levels above the worst of the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. Their put buying has been obscene. Option expiries in the US have been running at two, uh, two to four trillion dollars. Yeah. I mean, can you get your head around that? Look at the option, the put option buying versus last time we ever got to these levels, they were all massive lows. So if people are buying that much downside hedging, who's left to sell? Mm. And then foreigners have bought the least amount of US equities in history. So my view is that everybody is one side of the boat. Mm. Now, yeah. can they be right? For sure. But well, the probabilities start narrowing. It's hard to, you know, as the saying goes, you, you you can't sell to sellers and you can't buy from buyers, right? I mean, if everyone's exhausted and everyone's sold, you know, at, at the margin, you know, just from the forced buying sort of aspect of, you know, continued pension endowment, superannuation payments, at some point they are going to be breaching mandates and will be forced to start allocating back into the markets. And inflation is still running reasonably hot, you know, whether it's real or not, you know, cash is definitely not a place to be sitting over the longer term. No. Um, and it doesn't mean something can't break and we get another stabler, whatever, right? I'm not saying new lows can't happen. Um, maybe they will. Maybe in Europe they will, because things are pretty bad. And I'm not saying that things aren't bad in Europe. I don't know. But the probabilities are, you know, I just look at, okay, where's the next 50% move? Is it down or up? It's probably up. <laughs> where's the next 20% move? Don't know. It's kind of probably up, maybe down. Whereas the next 10% move is very 50-50 at that point. So the risk reward actually for a longer term time horizon actually is not bad here. Mm. Not incredible, incredible. It's much better in digital assets because the downside, let's say, is even if the downside is 50% from here, the upside is 20x. So that's 40, 40 times risk reward. Okay, that's a much better bet. Mm. All right, guys. So I'm you have to go soon, but you you communicate this all the time, and and we do too. You do it slightly better, um, and and uh, and the fact is that when you do speak to big institutional investors, they seem to be looking for the bottom. It's like they're trying to pick the bottom of the market before they're going to invest. Your your statement earlier on that they just need some FOMO is is that what you think is really going to start happening when the big institutional investors start coming on board? That you're just going to start getting a sense of FOMO, and then off it goes. Yeah, because then you get the news flow. So and so are investing. They've done this. They've launched that. They've partnered with so and so, um, and just price. I mean, humans are pretty simple, right? The price mm -hmm. is going up. They want to buy it. The price is going down. They want to sell it, mm -hmm. regardless of whether that makes sense or not. That's the history of markets. So that's why everybody yes. is super underweight equities right now, and that's why as equities go, when they go up, 
it'll be driven on this wall of fear because everybody's underweight and they get forced back in. It's with crypto assets, everyone's kind of had the mandate now. Um, and then, you know, guess what? With Ethereum at three and a half thousand, you'll see money pouring in mm. that should have got in here, but they've just yeah. left. Yeah. It's Thanks, thanks so much for your time, Rob. We really, really appreciate it. It was, it was great connecting with you. We really are a big fan of your work. I don't know if there's um, anything else you want to add, Derek? Um, Rob, we're recording this, of course, and I think many of us are going to want to listen to this again. I do. Um, and really pick out some parts in this. Um, and so we'll record it. We'll have it out within the next few days um, out to the network and we'll have it out on LinkedIn too. And we find that many, many more people um, listen to it when it goes out on that recording environment too and we'll get you a copy. Um, enormously delighted to have you on board. You can hear that we're evangelists in this space too. So it's lovely to speak to a fellow evangelist when you speak a lot of the time to institutional investors. So, you know, my head feels sore to keep hitting it against the wall. Um, but the fact of the matter is that they are acknowledging the importance of this space. They just don't know what to do with it, it appears, um, along the way. So um, inspiring to have you along. I, I hope we have the opportunity to connect again. Maybe one day you might be kind enough to come on Beyond Bitcoin with us and, and shoot the breeze on any topic you choose. Um, we're happy for it. But thank you so much indeed for being with us um, our evening, your morning. Perfect. Great. Great to see you, everybody, and thanks for the time. Thanks. Thanks, I'll Take care, man. All the best. Take care. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed our monthly webinar. All of Portal's webinars are available on our website, portal.am, or on the major podcast platforms. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please email us on info at portal.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Until next month, stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. Bye for now.